Welcome to episode 16 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Hi, it's Todd Houston. I just wanted to mention that we want you. We want you to be involved with the 3C Digital Media Network as a content creator. If you have a course in mind or a webinar, or if you'd like to start your own podcast, we would like to work with you. So go over to the 3CDigitalMediaNetwork.com website and sign up to be a content creator today. And now, back to the interview. Today I have the honor and pleasure of interviewing Dr. Dale Atkins. Dr. Atkins is a licensed psychologist with a master's in special education, focus on deafness. She has extensive experience with children and families living with hearing loss. Dr. Atkins has more than 45 years as a relationship expert focusing on families, wellness, aging well, life transitions, managing stress, and living a balanced, meaningful life. She is the author of seven books, most recently The Kindness Advantage, Cultivating Compassionate and Connected Children, co-authored with Amanda Salzhauer. And you can visit www.thekindnessadvantagebook.com to learn more about this important work. Among the many accolades for The Kindness Advantage is that it was chosen by Greater Good Magazine as one of the 10 best parenting books of 2018 and by The Huffington Post as one of the best books to teach kindness in 2019. In addition to writing books, Dr. Atkins has written many chapters, articles, and journals for popular and professional audiences. She lectures worldwide, often about raising responsible, kind children and adapting to life's challenges in healthy ways. She is a recurring guest expert in the media who, for the past 17 years, has frequently appeared on NBC's Today Show and CNN. Dr. Atkins has a private psychology practice in New York City and lives in Connecticut. She is an active volunteer in her community. Dale and her dog, Samson, are a certified dog therapy team. She sits on several nonprofit boards whose foci are literacy, tolerance, wellness, child protection, and community action. And she's been recognized locally and nationally for her philanthropic work. Interested persons are invited to visit her website at www.drdaleatkins.com. And so it gives me great joy to welcome Dr. Dale Atkins to the podcast. Well, Dr. Dale Atkins, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being with me today. 
Thank you. It is a pleasure to be uh, in your orbit. And thank you for asking me to join you. Well, we first met and got in touch with each other, I guess, when when back in my old A.G. Bell days, and obviously we're all still, you know, members of A.G. Bell and doing work in that area. But uh, how did you get connected to the world of hearing loss? It's a very good question. I had um, I had an uncle who had a very significant hearing loss. And I think that aside from the fact that he was one of my favorite uncles, I think that desensitized me early on and also sensitized me at the same time to uh, some of the needs uh, that people who had hearing losses had. I also uh, went to camp when I was a little girl and one of my best friends who remained a friend my whole life uh, had a hearing loss. And so I, I believe that those two people really helped to formulate my sensitivity and my interest. I was also very interested in speech and language. And when I was in college, I did some tutoring in the area of uh, speech and language with children who were in the neighborhood who had learning disabilities. And then when I wanted to go to graduate school, I had prior to that had uh, an accident. And I was in and out of rehab centers to try to, it was an orthopedic accident. And as I was getting better, I was volunteering at a, uh, the Center for Rehabilitative Medicine connected with the uh, Rusk Institute. And the kids were there for orthopedic issues mostly. But I remember being assigned to a couple of kids who couldn't hear and nobody could communicate with them. And it really was stunning to me. And I knew that there was so much going on and nobody could really communicate with them. Mm -hmm. So I was working part-time at NYU and I had an opportunity to take some classes and I took some classes in special ed. And then I decided I wanted to uh, go further. So I went to teacher's college at Columbia University in what was then called the Education of the Deaf program. And, uh, and that kind of did it. You know, I, I really fell in love with the field. It was in the 1970s, early 1970s. So there was a lot of conversation about mm -hmm. the ways to communicate, the ways to teach. People were very polarized. Um, cochlear implants were very new. And it was an exciting time to be coming into the field. And so early 70s. So I would guess that was probably a time of total communication sort of coming onto the scene. Um, and was that what uh, was happening? It was, although I went to a program that was more oral, oral, mm -hmm. and um, I did have student teaching placements at schools that were total communication primarily and schools that were oral. And at the time, the Lexington School for the Deaf in Queens was an oral school. And I did uh, my most of my student teaching there and then was offered a job there. So I was kind of on the oral track, mm -hmm. and um, but always felt this, um, this tension and always felt a sense of um, difficulties for families needing to make decisions 
um, based on information that seemed to be skewed. I, I became very interested in the family's dilemmas. And that's probably why I migrated into the field of psychology, because I felt that I had um, a lot of information about development uh, when a child had special needs, but I didn't really feel as if I had a lot of background in development, either child development, human development, family systems. Uh, and that's after working in the field for a while, that's why I chose to go to graduate school in, in those areas. So how was Lexington, the Lexington Oral School, had such a great reputation back in the day of, of having an excellent school? Yes, it was. I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to teach there. And, uh, and I learned so much. And interestingly, you know, with Facebook, it's so hard to believe, but I'm still in touch with some of my mm-hmm. first students. You know, now they're married, having children, and it's it's just a joy to be able to uh, connect and see what they're doing and how they are. Um, I, though, developed a real interest in, in working with very young children, babies and their parents, because when I was at uh, Lexington, I, I was with teenagers, uh, middle schoolers, and I loved that. However, I really, really felt that there were many issues that parents had not resolved. And it was many years after they had found out about the diagnoses of their child's hearing. And mm-hmm. and it disturbed me that there wasn't at the time more going on with very young children and parents. So I wanted to work in that area, but you had to have experience. So I did a student teaching you know, time there and I volunteered. Um, but I wouldn't be hired because I didn't have the experience. It was kind of a catch-22. So at that point, a friend of mine uh, who, with whom I went to teacher's college, uh, her name then was Ruth Rubinovitz, uh, she and I uh, went to Israel and we taught at the Micha Center for Deaf Children, where I was able to work with very young children and their parents and families. And from there, I went to the John Tracy Clinic in California, which was all about very young children and their families. Right. And it was from there that I that I decided I really wanted to study psychology and child development. And so that was in the formative years of early intervention, when early intervention was sort of yeah. coming onto the scene at the federal level and and really being pushed, and and of course. Back in those days, we often didn't identify those children with hearing loss until two and a half or three, or sometimes even later when they showed up in kindergarten, first grade. Um, so that's incredible. You had the opportunity to have those experiences and get to those those little ones and those families so early on. That's that was really great. It was very helpful to me, and I, I although I loved working with the kids, I really, really loved working with the parents sure. and the siblings, and that's really when I began my interest, my lifelong interest in the effects on siblings. Also, I might add, when I was in graduate school, a disproportionate number of the people in the graduate programs were siblings of children who had some kind of what was then called special needs. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I thought, well, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, as you recall, we probably wouldn't have had the number of teachers that we had um, had those people at the time, mostly women, uh, were they were early trained because they were siblings of 
either younger or older siblings who had some kind of a disability. And and I've always been interested in sibling relationships. So, you know, it's kind of like whatever presented, I I responded to. And so from there, you, you go back to grad school, you get your degree in, in psychology. In early childhood and developmental studies at UCLA with uh, Dr. Norma Feshbach. And, um, and then I studied, you know, kind of like what was minor in, in clinical. And I started working with families more seriously. Mm-hmm. And at the time, um, I, my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and he lived back east. And so I was teaching at UCLA and at the John Tracy Clinic. And I was kind of bi-coastal and I was coming back and forth. And I decided that I wanted to spend more time with my family. So I moved back east. Oh, that's, that was incredible. So what was the timeline when you moved back? I moved back in the uh, early to mid 80s. And uh, yeah, yeah. And mid 80s. And uh, have been here ever since and and was working with families and and opened a private practice. and. And then did, you know, teaching and consulting. But I've always really, really appreciated um, the family systems issues, particularly with families of children, then young adults, um, and then older adults who, because the technology was also changing during all of these years. And, you know, older adults were getting cochlear implants and children started to get them, then very young children started to get them. And, and schools were becoming uh, much more mainstream. So there was, there was a lot more conversation about expectations of what kids were able to do and the different types of approaches. Um, so it was an interesting time to be in the field. Sure. And so I have a question in terms of, you know, you, you were in the field when we weren't identifying children very early, you know. I, yes started when as well when we weren't identifying ch- children very early and now we have newborn hearing screening yes and so and then of course being able to then get children if they fail the screening identified and then into early intervention hopefully fairly fairly quickly compared to what it used to be what do you think has been the biggest change or what are we still missing maybe when we think about family systems and working with parents, you know, what could we be doing better to make sure that they are feeling supported when that diagnosis happens and then early intervention goes uh, from there? Todd, that's really a great question. My knee-jerk reaction response is I think we need to listen more to where the parents are I think because there are so many technological advances now, as opposed to before, and there are so many routes available, that sometimes we as professionals um, forget that there's still an adaptation process that needs to go on within the family and that people adapt to understanding that their child is different from the one that they were thinking they were going to have. And that, you know, moms and dads aren't always on the same pages and 
cultural influences affect how people respond. And I think we just need to observe and listen and still emphasize to parents and families that they are the parents and that they, you know, that they still know what to do. And we're kind of there to help them learn uh, the techniques, but their instincts about parenting, about loving, about playing, about really getting to know their kids need to be reinforced. Because I think what's important is that we underscore how important it is for parents to feel competent. Mm -hmm. And when they feel competent, they will feel more confident um, in learning what they need to learn in order to, you know, be the right parent for this kid. And sometimes parents still feel very overwhelmed and unsure that they'll be able to be up for the task. And, and sometimes, and I don't think it's intentional at all, but we as professionals, you know, kind of present ourselves as, well, you do this and this and this and this, and, and you know, um, without really understanding that, that there's a personal timeline and we have to be respectful of that. And we're there to encourage, we're there to guide, and we're really there to partner. So remember to listen, to partner, to pay attention to people's competencies, tell them when, you know, oh, look at the way you held her just the way she likes, or look at the way, you know, you're, you're talking back with her, or whatever it is, and, and really be an encouraging and compassionate partner. I think we, we need to do that. Well, nothing uh, breeds more success than success, right? So if a family, if our parents are feeling successful, they're going to want to do more of what makes them feel successful. And so uh, I think you know, being positive and reinforcing and truly being family-centered in our approach is, is a key for success for those families. And I, I totally agree with that. May I add something to it? Because I think that, you know, if you're asking the comparison between when I first started, when we first started, and now, I think part of it is like the world has changed so much. And there's so much information available now, some of which is helpful, some of which isn't. And sometimes I think parents feel flooded by and overwhelmed, not only by their situation, but also by the amount of information that is available, some of which is applicable, some of which isn't. Um, so in that, in that way, I think we're also can be helpful guides, but we also have to listen to what it is they're focusing on. And I think the other thing is everybody's so busy and everybody is so multitasking that if we can help parents particularly and families really focus and, and, and pay attention to this one thing at a time that they're doing with their children, they, I think in general, it will be very helpful to them as a family, mm -hmm. but I think that they will be able to see more of what they are accomplishing as opposed to everything that is yet to be done. So I think we can be helpful in that, not only in our own role modeling, but also in, in, you know, instead of when someone says, Oh, I have so much to do. Or something, yes. What are we going to do now? How can we have, control over this one thing and and kind of 
set that as a standard and, and have realistic expectations for that kind of approach. So it's almost like if I'm going to sort of give it a, a different, maybe share a little bit different perspective, it's almost like breaking tasks down and in, into smaller units and setting smaller expectations and experiencing the success and then reinforcing. Yeah, and, and really going to the parent strengths. I think it's important right. for people to, to, as you say, experience success, but they may not know that what they're doing is what you see as a strength. And, and I think it's really important that uh, because then people are motivated to do more and to do and to be creative and to say, to bring to you, you know, we did this at home and, and she really seemed to enjoy it. Or this was something that he never was interested in before. And then to, to build on this as a partnership. Great words of wisdom. I think uh, that's, that's exactly uh, sort of to a degree, my philosophy in working with families is trying to be family centered and trying to always focus on the positive. Um, you know, there's sometimes when I have families when I can imagine that there may be uh, food insecurity in the home, or there may be other issues, transportation, and yes. uh, just, you know, uh, just so many other things pulling at a family. And it, you know, maybe all that they can do is just have that session with me. And if just getting there was probably, uh, you know, a, something that, that was an achievable thing. And so maybe they didn't have time to read to their child that week or do something I wanted them to do, but they showed up, they were there, they're committed while they're there with me, and I'll take that. And maybe we can build on that, you know. And so it, it's it takes us to, um, we have to put ourselves in a different perspective sometimes as professionals that, you know, it's not always middle-class families. It's not always, you know, upper middle-class. It's a, it's a range of families are working with, with a range of needs and stresses. And especially right now, of course, with, with this pandemic that we're in the middle of, um, that only adds a whole new layer of, of worry and stress to the situation. It underscores what you're saying, especially now, because I mean, do you know if this person has their job? Do you know if they've had to you know, take in someone to live with them? Mm -hmm. Or is there someone who they can't visit who's because of the fear of COVID? Or, you know, how are they getting to their appointment? And as you talk about food, how many people are living? Are there other kids who are going to school online? I mean, there's so many things that are happening. And I think what's important to remember is that this time with this family may be, the, may be so important and it's structure for them. So you really want it to be a positive experience. Right. And, and, and so that, because that will generalize to other areas of their lives. I think mm -hmm. if we understand that everybody is feeling more anxious than normal, everybody is feeling more overwhelmed than normal. Everybody is feeling more worried than normal. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think that for families who are beginning, let's say early intervention, um, you know, when they're doing it through video <laughs> and they're meeting people through video, um, it's the whole thing is so strange that we just have to acknowledge it. And I think by acknowledging it and being, you know, let, let your humanity come through um, and really understand that, that you know, you, you, you may have worked with a, 
I don't know, hundreds, thousands of, of families, but you've never worked with this family and you've never worked with this child. And I think that that's probably one of the most important things. And also maybe you've worked with this child before the pandemic, but now that the pandemic is going on, their family has changed in ways that you may or may not be aware of. And being able to have an open communication and be sensitive is very important now. It's hard. It's hard for professionals as well. It's hard for professionals to, you know, who, who perceive themselves as successful in, you know, working with people hands-on to have a screen and, and to understand their own concerns at this time. You know, professionals are also members of families and what are their concerns? Who are they taking care of? Um, are they able to, are they going to school? Are, what, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And I, I think everybody needs to have standards, but everybody needs to give themselves, you know, many more pats on the back and give yourself a pass from time to time. What are you doing to keep yourself well? How are you encouraging the families you're working with to keep themselves well? You know, are you, are you helping them to breathe? Are you helping them to take a moment? Mm-hmm. Are you helping them? And are you doing this yourself? You know, are you are you exercising? How's your sleep? What are you eating? These are things that are really important now. And for many of us, will make the difference between how we show up. You know, if we're burning the candle at both ends and we are running ourselves ragged, we won't be there in the way we need to be for the clients we're trying to serve. And we won't be very good role models for the families because we are role models for the families. Oh, that's a very good point, being a, a role model and being professional and but sort of uh, trying to be that stable sort of force for families uh, when you do connect and having to connect online. Uh, that's uh, I haven't thought about it from that perspective of being a role model for, for families or for the clients you're working with. Well, certainly we are in the way we behave with children, mm-hmm. in the way we talk with them. Um, oh, as you as you mentioned, if someone's unable to do the assignment and read at home, are they feeling chastised or are they feeling like you have empathy and you say, wow, you know, it's just so great you got here. Don't focus on what you didn't do. And let's see, how might you be able to do that this week? You know, is there something that we could try and encourage you to do that might help you to do that? But if you don't, you're here. And we're going to make the best of the time that we have together. And this is what we're going to do. And I think, again, that right now, so many people are so close to the edge. And so many families who may not have had the same reaction and response that they're having now um, before, before COVID, they're having it because they're just too close to the edge. Mm-hmm. And. We have to be cognizant, too, that we're coming up on the holidays, which we know can be stressful and have another layer of concern. We didn't have this situation last year during the holidays, so I'm a little worried about that And just in terms of our, our nation's mental health and getting through the holidays with an election. We have to kind of throw that in the mix, plus the holidays itself and a pandemic. I think it's... Um, it's a little scary from one perspective. <laughs> I, I agree with you. And to me, 
what it resonate what resonates is that we need to be that much more caring of ourselves and others. We have to have that much more compassion for ourselves and others. I mean, there are people who are sick. There are people who are getting worried about being sick. There are people who, who are um, recovering. And there are people who are, you know, more, much more vulnerable than others. And they really don't want to walk around with their, you know, a sign on them. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm particularly vulnerable health-wise, so could you please, you know, be extra careful. But yet there's a sense of heightened concern. And, you know, as the holidays approach, people look forward to holidays, they look forward to being with their families. And the likelihood of most people being with their families, their extended families, is quite low. And it's quite low because that's the way we're probably going to stay healthy. But that does not, so you do it, you comply, but it doesn't mean that you're cheering, you know, that you're a cheerleader. It means that what we have to do is consistently weigh disappointment and sadness and often grief with the choice that we've made, which we hope will be a choice to help us remain healthy or stable or whatever it is. And I think that sometimes within a family, there may be one person who wants to take one route and another person who wants to take another route. So that causes an added stress. And, and again, at, at, at the holiday time, you know, even without COVID, holidays are fraught with high emotionality right. and, you know, all of the all of the conversations we have of oh no you know what if Aunt Bill what if Uncle Bill says this at the table or what if this one happens now we may not have them at the table but as you're talking about people are certainly having um, rather colorful conversations about the election mm-hmm. about about something like mask wearing and people are feeling divided at a time when we want to feel united. So to bring it back home to our conversation, how can we be a force for good? How can we infuse every interaction we have with our colleagues and with our families that we're working with, with kindness, with empathy, with compassion? Because that's really what is needed now. Mm-hmm. And, and if we can be that role model, we can also be a role model for parents being kind and compassionate to their partners if they have partners, to their children. Um, and I think that that's what will get us through this. Sort of taking the golden rule to a whole new level, <laughs> but living it every day in every interaction. You know, when my um, co-author and I wrote The Kindness Advantage, mm-hmm. we really focused on the golden rule. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons we wrote the book. We couldn't understand why we were not seeing more of treat people the way you would like to be treated. We couldn't get it. Mm-hmm. It's still hard for me to process. I will say that when there is kindness in an interaction, and there can be kindness in every interaction, number one, because we're hardwired for it, but also because we, it's a choice. You know, what's the, what would be the kind thing to say? What would be the kind thing to do? What's the kind thought I can share with myself, right? You pay attention and you really think of how you can be there for someone else 
and you feel that you've made a difference. It brings meaning to your life. Mm -hmm. So I think that in this time, when people are questioning so many things and, 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 and there are so few things that we can really rely on because it's such an uncertain time, I think that what we can do is really try and infuse our interactions with kindness. I think it's, it should be the, the least we can do. But as you know, as you just said, it's just so hard to find sometimes uh, these days. But if we can just come back to that golden rule, it'll make our lives more richer. It'll help others and maybe help the country get through uh, the next who knows how long it's going to take, but at least through the holidays into the new year, hopefully with uh, vaccines on the horizon and, and uh, some positive news about the pandemic. Yeah, it's it's like what you said before, with helping families, you know, break down a task and one step at a time. I think that when we look too far in the future, I think it's good to look in the future and have hope and make plans and act as if there's going to be, you know, uh, uh, some semblance of what was familiar, what was familiar. Um, at the same time, I think we have to stay in the moment we're in and we have to try, in my opinion, to bring joy in this moment. And even when we're disappointed, recognize the disappointment, recognize the sorrow and then say, yes, this is very real. But how can I not fall down the rabbit hole? How can I try to help this family not fall down the rabbit hole? What can I, what can I share with them that is honest and that is real and that will help to give them hope? Because of all the research that's going on now, one of the things that we see over and over again is how important it is for people to have hope when they are in uncertainty, when they don't feel they have control, and when they feel traumatized. And we have a range of those feelings. We have a rise in anxiety. We have a rise in depression. We have rise in suicidality. And what we need to do is find ways to stay as present as we can be and to offer hope, to offer optimism and, and have it be real, you know, based in fact. And uh, I think what's important when you're a professional working with families is to say, if you have the permission of the family, say, you know, I'd love to put you together with this, with this family. Um, because I remember when I was working with them a few years ago, and I think they were, they were in a very similar spot. Maybe you could talk with them. You know, with HIPAA, it's a little harder, but we can still do it. We can still get permission from people to see if they would like to talk with another family. Because as, as we know, bringing your professional uh, training to a family is fantastic. But no one really knows what it's like to be in a situation unless you've been in that situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very true. Well, Dell, you have given me hope. And so I, I appreciate your time today. And uh, I know you've have, uh, you're well-published. So you have so much to offer. How can people get in touch with you? Well, thank you. And good luck with this wonderful venture of yours. This is pretty exciting and really needed. Um, um, I have a website. It's www.drdaleatkins.com. And the doctor is D-R- and then my name. So it's D-R-D-A-L-E-A-T-K-I-N-S. 
And then um, our new book has a website. It's called thekindnessadvantagebook.com. And I welcome people being in touch and uh, or reach me by email, which is dale at drdaleatkins.com. And I thank you for inviting me to join you and to and to chat with you um, about this unusual time that we're in. Well, thank you very much for your time. And it's it's just been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Take good care. Well, I hope you are as inspired as I am after spending some time speaking with Dr. Dale Atkins. And what comes to mind for me is a great quote by Margaret Mead. And she said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, is the only thing that ever has. And so my challenge, maybe we can call it the listening brain challenge, is to really think about and do what Dr. Atkins talked about. Let's try to infuse every interaction with kindness, with empathy, and in every situation that we are faced with, we choose kindness. We treat ourselves with kindness. We treat our family members with kindness, our coworkers. And if we're professionals in the field, we treat the families we're working with with kindness. At the end of the day, I think in these times, we need to focus on kindness and giving each other hope as we deal with the pandemic and, and the holidays and the real divisions that we have right now. So I want you to post on social media how you are embracing the listening bring challenge of fostering and really focusing on infusing kindness in every interaction. How'd you do that? And maybe if we do that every day, maybe for the rest of this year, if we think about how we can use kindness, then maybe we can, as Margaret Mead said, this group of listeners that we have, we can change the world, at least maybe change our country. And thank you, as always, for listening. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.